This episode of Last Things First is sponsored by Dan Cummins. Comedian Dan Cummins has some advice for you. Don't wake the bear! It also happens to be the name of his new album, out September 30th on Warner Music Nashville. On his new album, Cummins offers the audience his own brand of odd, featuring his unconventional yet pointed observations mixed with a slight twist of delusion. On Don't Wake the Bear, he tackles any subject from gun control laws to raising a child that is clearly smarter than you. Be sure to pick up Don't Wake the Bear from Dan Cummins on September 30th, his fifth album from Warner Music Nashville. Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people with dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Today's guest, Tony Hendra, began his career at Cambridge University with the famed Footlights, is the comedy partner of the late, great Graham Chapman and started in the annual review with Chapman and John Cleese. He came to the United States as a duo act with Nick Ullett, appearing multiple times on The Ed Sullivan Show and Merv Griffin, before splitting up and taking a job as the first editor hired by the founders of the National Lampoon. While there, he made the Lampoon's first album, Radio Dinner, with Michael O'Donoghue, and followed that up by giving John Belushi, Chevy Chase, and Christopher Guest their first starring roles in the Lampoon's off-Broadway hit Lemmings. Hendra appeared in This Is Spinal Tap, playing the band's manager, co-created and co-produced the British TV satire Spitting Image, and served as editor-in-chief of Spy Magazine from 1993 to 1994. He has written four books, including the posthumous memoir of George Carlin, Last Words, and for the past several years, he's led a new satirical operation called The Final Edition. He's just put out a new comedy album with the Lampoon called Are There Any Triggers Here Tonight? There's a lot of great comedy history and stories to get to, so let's get to it! So Tony Hendra, thank you so much for inviting me into your home. I really not at all. We, I really appreciate we, it. We, we, have, we get people off the street all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so if I were to, uh, you just put out a, a new CD. Uh, are there any triggers here t- tonight? Yes. And um, if I were to go back to 1972 and told you that 34 years later, no. Actually, no, 44. more than that. 40, 44, yeah. 44 years later, yeah. you would be making CDs. Would it surprise you more that you would still be making satirical albums or that it's a satirical album with the National Lampoon? Well, that's a two-part question. Yes. Uh, I mean, it, um, it wouldn't surprise me in this respect that, um, that I love audio. I think, I think audio is, satirically speaking, a far superior medium than video because you can do so much more in it. And, uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it, and it asks the listener to, to, you know, to use his or her imagination and, and draw into, be drawn into, rather, the, um, uh, the scene that you're setting. So if you want to put Pope Francis on Mars and have him attacked by Cookie Monster, you can. You know, it's just a question of sound effects. Right. And and um, and I love that. I think that's that 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 gives it opens you up to all kinds of things that you either can't do on video or are enormously expensive. And um, so yes, I, I I would not be surprised, or no, I would not be surprised, whichever of those is correct. 
uh, <laughs> even, even that with, I was still doing that. Even with I, all the emerging technologies we have, it's still. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think any emerging technology has come along to, you know, to be superior to either of either audio or video. I mean, the, the internet is basically just little television right. in everybody's fist. I mean, it's not it's not any different than television in that respect, and you still have to spend a fortune to to make a, a really good video. So, um, well, that's not true. Let's say you have to spend a fortune to make an elaborate video, and and you can do that in mm -hmm. audio. So, no, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, uh, I've always loved it, and the, the, there's a there's definite purpose to my keeping my hand in, so so to speak, at my advanced age. Um, doing essentially the stuff that we did at the National Lampoon, but updated for, to the injustices and stupidities of the 21st century. <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, the CD plays upon the, um, the concept of political correctness with a, a, a campus recording right. gone awry. I, I remember I went to uh, Princeton at the same time as Jeff Chrysler, who made the CD with you and his Indeed, uh, my your co-producer. And I remember when we were undergraduates, political correctness, that was the first time I heard political correctness. So it's been around a while. When you were at Cambridge in your youth, was that even a concept? Not at all. I mean, actually, generationally, I think what, uh, what, what distinguished us, I don't, I don't mean to sound like an old fart here, but mm -hmm. I mean, what, because I'm a very old fart, but, <laughs> and, and I am very old, but I'm not a fart. Uh, I, I, what distinguished us was, was that we were really angry and outward directed and, and, and the satire that came out of that era, it very much reflects that. Um, we weren't, we weren't sort of interested in stand-up comedy that told you all about, you know, the comedians in, inner life and, 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 and funny quirks and funny obsessions and so forth and so on. That solipsistic humor came in much later. So we were, we, first of all, we, we were, that, were doing that kind of humor, and the audience was not, on, was, was not at all interested in closing things down because they were offensive. On the contrary, they wanted to offend everybody. Uh, this was a very angry generation, and it had good reason to be. Um, either it was being drafted into a, a, a moral war, or it was being, um, uh, being uh, threatened by... Uh, a foreign enemy uh, who was supposed to be a friend, the United States. So I grew up in, you know, the worst part of the Cold War. And uh, I was just as angry at the United States as I was at the Russians, even more so, in fact, because I knew the history of the Cold War, that it wasn't begun by the Russians. And so uh, we, had, we had that difference, and, and, and everybody had that. I mean, at least anyone with a brain. Um, but... You know, but, um, but that said, I must say, I don't like the phrase political correctness. I think it's, uh, it, was, uh, it was coined, as you, as you point out, around the late 90s and, uh, sorry, it was coined around the late 80s and right. the early 90s um, by, um, by the neoconservatives because they were now, after Reagan was sort of finally cranked off to wherever he was cranked off to um, and couldn't remember anything because he had Alzheimer's, um, he was. Uh, they they were now getting the pushback that they deserved while he was actually in power, which was that they were built on. Uh, they were their. Let me put it another way. Their politics was built on racism and elitism and even sexism, and they quite deserved that pushback and that criticism. But they had to find a way to neutralize it, and the way they found was the same old way that they always found to attack any kind of criticism, which is to call its their opponents commies. 
because political correctness came from the early days of the, of the Communist Party when you had to be politically correct to get in the party. And um, so I, I, I really resist that label because, as I say, I think political correctness is basically just a tool which, which has been used to destroy, destroy dissent, right. not to free it. And um, so to that degree, I, I don't like to use that. But that said, I think what's going on on campus is appalling. And I was going to actually fold that into the previous question <laughs> that you asked about, um, you know, that, that, I would be, that I would be doing this at this moment. Right. This is precisely what I did do 44 years ago and, and onwards. We, we were talking to an almost exclusively campus audience. And um, the kind of things we did that were remarkable, not only for the fact that they were funny about entirely new things that people had not laughed at before, but that they also were extreme and deliberately so and radical because there was a radical in the White House and, and radicals running the country, radicals in the military who, who were bombing, and bombing completely... Uh, harmless sovereign country, and so you know that that to that degree, I'm back on campus with this album, which is set in a little right. community college in uh, called the Artesia Community College <laughs> in Trickle Down, Ohio, mm. and um, it's right uh, on the river, isn't it? What's that? It's right on the, off the river. Yes, yes, down. yes, it is right. The river that used to catch on fire, <laughs> but yeah, um, and um, the. Uh, as soon as we, and we are there together basically to do a college concert mm -hmm. with, with the contents of our album to be. And as soon as we announce the title, are there any triggers here tonight, they get offended and start, Because you know, said trigger. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> and start accusing us of sarcasm, mm. you know, and, and, uh, and, and so forth. And um, so we decided to plunge into our least offensive material. Um, on side one and do that and then by the time we get to the intermission between side one and side two there's now they're, they're now doing sort of they're, they're, the complete chaos reigns throughout the campus and they're doing sort of politically correct thing for want of a better term like burning recycled material and there's a woman walking around with a rape whistle blowing it every time anyone laughs um, so we decide to throw caution to the winds and just do the rest of our show uh, and, until at the end of the show, basically, we clear the campus <laughs> and feel that we have succeeded no end in making our point. You know, when, when most people, at least I'm speaking from my own experience and my friend's experience, when we pick a, a university to attend, we're doing so on the basis of either a location or prestige or party atmosphere right. or a major. We're not doing it thinking we're going to meet the people who are going to change our, the course of our lives, but invariably we do. Right. How much, how much do you think about the fact that by going to Cambridge, you end up seeing the footlights and becoming part of that? Well, I mean, I, um, it, it's, let me start this again. I mean, certainly I went to Cambridge to, to become a scholar. I mean, I was, I was, I was very, I had a scholarship and I was very committed to English, medieval English literature. Um, I also wanted to become a monk, but that's right, a different that's, story. That's but, Father Joe. Yes, indeed. That's, that's Father Joe, the wonderful book I wrote and about a wonderful man. Um, and, um, but, but leaving that aside, I mean, it, uh, it was what I expected was to do well at Cambridge, which I did. I did very well in my first year and, um, and, uh, and become probably an academic or, or at least a teacher or something like that. Um, instead, because of a show I saw there called Beyond the Fringe, uh, which I'll talk about if you want me to later on. But, but because of that, um, it 
did, Cambridge changed my mind not because of what I learned there, but because of the people that I met. And um, maybe I should explain about Beyond the Fringe. Yeah, to? Yes, please. Okay, Beyond the Fringe was this marvelous satirical review that uh, appeared in 1960. And it stopped at Cambridge on its way to the Edinburgh, Edinburgh Fringe Festival in the early summer. And um, it, uh, it was the first time, really, in English history uh, that I, could, I know of when all the sacred goods of the British Empire, this, this dusty old empire that we had, were all brought together on one stage and everything that you can think of, Shakespeare, the BBC, World War II, the monarchy, uh, the Church of England, you know, you, you name it. If it was English, it was on that stage mm -hmm. and it was eviscerated. I mean, <laughs> eviscerated. And um, it was, uh, the cast was, was, was uh, there were only four guys who did it and one of them was called Dudley Moore who later came, him, yeah. became very famous. And another guy, he was from Oxford, and another guy from Cambridge called Jonathan Miller, who also was a, was, became a famous director here. Um, and another wonderful guy from Cambridge called Peter Cook, and uh, Alan Bennett, who's a, very, who's a very famous English dramatist now. So, but anyway, these guys just took apart each one of these things methodically. And to put it in a nutshell, I walked into that theater a monk, and I came out a satirist. Uh, it was that mind-changing. So I've always believed that satire can change minds, for one thing. It the changed other, yours. Yes, indeed. And certainly, I mean, to, from, you could not have gone from a, a more <laughs> peaceful and word. quiet person mm. uh, to, you know, what I, what I later became. But it, um, it, it so changed my mind that I signed up in the next term, in the fall term, um, with a group called Footlights. And Footlights was uh, uh, a kind of equivalent of the Harvard Lampoon in terms of the kinds of stuff it did and the kind of people it attracted, except that instead of, a, instead of parodies and so on, we did, um, we did a, a, a yearly theatrical review. And a lot of Beyond the Fringe had begun as, as, as the Cambridge Review okay. uh, uh, the, of the Footlights, because both Miller and Cook were in Footlights, and the other two were in the Oxford equivalent. What was the process to join um, the, the process to join was actually all right. Process, sorry. Yeah, the, process, the pro process. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and we all say tomato. Yes. But um, the, the 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 process was that you had to write and audition a mm -hmm. script at what was called a smoking concert. These were in the days when smoking was still celebrated. Uh, which was held in the Footlights Club. smoking jackets, probably. Yeah, oh, some, some people did actually sport yeah. smoking jackets. So, and through the incredible fog of pipe, cigar, and cigarette smoke, you would pitch your stuff, basically, mm -hmm. from the stage. You'd, you'd do it, and, you, and then you would be either invited or cheered off the stage. Um, and luckily, I was invited. And in my year, the, well, the previous year, the previous, previous year, Peter Cook had been there, and, and Jonathan Miller the previous year after that, in the previous year, David Frost had been the president of Footlights. Hmm. Uh, and I didn't know in that my about David. Year, what's that? I didn't know that about David Frost. Yes, I mean, indeed. And it, he was, at that moment, he was sort of getting ready to do That Was the Week That Was, which was kind of a seminal show. Okay. Um, and uh, at that, uh, actually in my year, my contemporaries, uh, were John Cleese and Graham Chapman, the later of Monty Python. And there were several other people, Tim Brooke Taylor and... Bill Oddie and people like that who are sort of mega, mega stars in, in, in England and a number of other people who went into comedy in the 60s uh, later and became known as the Cambridge Mafia. <laughs> and, um, but anyway, so th these were the people that I met 
just by going to college and, you know, expecting to become a dusty old academic. <laughs> Did lots of inter, in, intercollegiate politics, you know. Yeah. <coughs> now, with the Footlights, are you in it for a year or are you in it for No, you're two, in it for, for as, long as, you're, okay. as long as you're at Cambridge, which is a three-year course. So, but you weren't part of the review that traveled the world. No, I wasn't part of Cambridge. You left. That was that was the year after 63, I left. Sixty-three, and you were. Um, it would have been sixty-three, yes, because I went down in sixty-two. But I was in that that year's uh, uh, review because okay. we did one a year. When it when it went around the world, did you think, oh, well, I, that I could was, have been me, or well, I, I I didn't really have time to be have regrets about it because by then I had. My own comedy act right, uh, you with another Footlights. Kind of like Dudley Moore and, and Peter Cook. You yeah, formed a yeah. duo. Yeah, exactly. And did you think that was going to be the thing? You were going to be the... Well, the first person I thought it might be because the first person I did it with was Graham Chapman. Um, so, you know, long before <laughs> Monty Python, I was working with Graham Chapman, which was kind of great. The only time in my life when I was the straight man. and um, <laughs> So to speak. He, he was a genius. He right. was just an incredibly funny guy. But anyway, so, and he, but then he decided he wanted to become a doctor, and so I got someone else from Footlights uh, who was not Graham Chapman. He was the straight man. But, um, uh, and uh, we were, by the time Cambridge Circus came to New York, we were already in New York, um, uh, where we had, uh, you know, come, come to work, because, mainly because of our work in England where we've been seen by an American producer. Did you find it difficult to crack the American market? Well, it was You not. came over before the beat. No, no, right after right the Beatles. Right after the Beatles, yeah, early, okay. Early so 64, right after the So Beatles. you have the British invasion of music, and you thought, oh, we'll, we'll just sneak in? Well, actually, we didn't. We, we, we had been asked before that happened to, to, um, to, to go over there by this, by this guy. His name was Robert Chartoff, who later became a famous film producer and was uh, responsible, god damn him, for Rocky 1 through 9, you know, and uh, made, made a great deal of money. But it's a very nice guy. But anyway, so he invited us to come over and actually promised us uh, at one, at, at once we got there that we, he would make us the Beatles of comedy. <laughs> <laughs> a rash promise. Never happened. But, um, but, so, but it wasn't difficult in New York. New Yorkers sort of got us. I mean, they didn't really understand... Some of the references, but 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 basically, our twittering British satire sort of went down reasonably well with New Yorkers. Um, Was there but, an expat culture here? Well, in the '60s, I know there is now that the yeah. British or Euro even any European yeah, comedians can come here and play to their crowd. Well, it wasn't, but this wasn't there. This wasn't. Let me let me just expo sure express that better. There really wasn't a big expat community at that point. Okay. Um, and um, that, that really happened, I would say, you know, with, with sex, drugs, rock and roll era. That, that's when that began happening, and a lot of Brits started coming over, mainly because the economy was so appalling in, 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 uh, in England. But, um, but anyway, so as I said, the New Yorkers were, were, were okay, and we were on Bleecker Street opening for Lenny Bruce, so we had a pretty good comedy-tuned audience for. Uh, there, there's for snippets our stuff. of uh, Lenny Bruce on the, on the new CD. Bruce and Carlin. Yes, indeed. Yes, <laughs> but especially Lenny. Well, yeah. obviously, the title of the album is is an homage to right. that, that that quintessential Lenny piece. Yeah, no but, spoilers, but. <laughs> what's that? No spoiler alerts. But no, 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 not at all. <laughs> There's some other kind of alerts too. Yes. But um, in fact, what, trigger warnings. Yeah. But. Um, 
No, but so, so but 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 on the first booking we got after Lenny after Lenny was busted twice in, in that and his career was actually ended during that booking. But um, the first the first uh, gig we got outside of New York mm-hmm. was in Dallas, Texas, and this was <laughs> tell me the date. <laughs> the date was three and a half months after the assassination. Mm. <laughs> So we were riding in from what was then called so Love. Very early of 1964. Yes, yes, okay. indeed, indeed. In fact, we when we got there, we we were we were driven in from the airport by this very strange Texan guy who had one of those very small heads with an mm-hmm. even smaller hat on it, you know, and just really strange character. Mm-hmm. And his name his name was Lem. That's all it said on his on his taxi medallion, Lem. Uh, so we asked Lem what he th- what he thought about the assassination, and and uh, and uh, he said, "Well, we're real sorry it had to happen here, but we're real pleased the son of a bitch is dead." And like that was, you know, our introduction to Dallas. Uh, Very nice. And and LBJ was president, so and, LBJ, you know. and, and anyway, so to make a very long story short, when we got up, when we got to the club. We were going to play to do our twittering British satire, and looked out to to see who our audience was, mm-hmm. which is sort of royal royalty from the oil business. Mm-hmm. It was a very expensive club, and on every table there was a brown paper bag with a bottle in it because Dallas was dry at that time, and a a large weapon of the Colt forty five uh, type on every <laughs> table. So we assumed this was some sort of informal form of review process. <laughs> <laughs> and we're terrified. And we asked the owner, and he said, he explained that Dallas was, was dry mm-hmm. and, and that if you were carrying a gun, it, 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 so the, the, the alcohol had to be concealed, right. but the gun had to be out in the open mm. so that people could see you reaching for it but right. before you shot them. Um, and um, anyway, that was the first place. We, and needless to say, we were just a horrible bomb. Um, we got round it, but that's another story. And yeah. that happened in many places until we twigged that, that if we probably, if we played Beatles songs and told a lot more jokes, um, you know, we'd, we'd do much better. And we did. We did. How, no, you mentioned being there when, when Lenny Bruce got busted. What was, you, if you were opening for him, what was the mood like in the room? Did, was there a sense that oh, no, something the, was going to go down that night? No, I, did, I, I guess the actual night it happened, I guess some people got, Got, I mean, there were plain, plain clothes guys in the mm-hmm. back of the room uh, taking notes of the show, so I'm, I'm sure some of the hipper people understood what might be going to happen. But, um, but no, I mean, it, it, was, it was quite, a, quite a, a surprise, and they, they sort of got him as he came off stage. It wasn't like it, it, wasn't like it was hush-hush outside the door mm-hmm. or anything. Okay. Um, but it was, um, it was certainly a very interesting introduction to... The First Amendment. Let's put it that way. <laughs> right. Was was that the show that Carlin was at too? No, no. That was that, that, that was, was earlier. That was an earlier bust in okay. Chicago. Yeah, at Mr. Kelly's. But so, anyway, so he was busted twice, and as I say, it, it ruined his career because there was there was a, a Catholic DA in Manhattan who just hated him and would, went really really went after him. How did that influence you, though? I mean, you you went from there to become more. Well, luckily, more Frank, brash with your humor. So well, did it inspire you to? Well, yes. I mean, it to was, take arms. Yes, it, uh, and, yes, and, and take up arms against against. I can't even remember that quote. <laughs> and buy something, something. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Hamlet. But um, no, it didn't actually. It, out, it outraged me. But it would, the outrage was useless because at that point, after the assassination, there really was a clampdown 
Lenny wasn't really part of it. It was a different thing with him. But there was a real clampdown on political humor. I mean, you went from Dick Gregory to Bill Cosby. You know, you went from Vaughn Meader and the Second City guys to to Woody Allen, you know, both of them who did routines about their childhood to become famous. So it was, it was, uh, it, it was a big change. And, and, and actually, that's sort of the story of my being a stand-up comic in, in, in the U.S. was horrific. I mean, it was, uh, uh, we weren't really stand-up comics, but we were two guys trying to make, you know, very large people in the Midwest laugh. And... Um, and it was it was impossible to do it. We found ways of doing it, but it was impossible to do it um, without either being such, uh, you know, uh, such stereotypical Brits that, mm-hmm. you know, if there'd been a, 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 a sort of national association for British people, they would have, you know, boycotted us. Um, but uh, but it's um, the other the, the only other option, you know, was to do something to do stuff that had nothing to do with anything. Outside of uh, outside of the television studio, I mean, it was you couldn't mention Vietnam, you couldn't f- mention sexual liberation, you couldn't mention women's liberation, you couldn't mention the Black Panthers, you couldn't mention anything that's that you the, wanted to talk about. That's right? what the Smothers Brothers ran up against. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, when, when they just did a whisper, I mean, it wasn't like they were they were doing anything really sort of offensive. Mm-hmm. Um, they were just suggesting that maybe some of these things weren't a good idea, <laughs> and they got closed down big time. So. When I found, I, I eventually, I, I was so frustrated that, that, I mean, I literally was, was in, in a rage all the time that I couldn't talk about the things I wanted to. So I broke up the act, and not very long after that, on the grapevine, I heard about the National Lampoon. And that was like meeting that group for the first time. It was like walking out of darkness into light, literally. I mean, it was fantastic. Yeah. It was like I'd been firing on one cylinder all these years, and now suddenly I could sort of put the whole... Formula One engine into into operation. No, I, I enjoyed the documentary that came out a couple of years ago, Drunk Stone Brilliant Dead. Drunk Stone Brilliant Dead. That you were part yes. of. Yes, indeed. You participated in. Yeah. And um, what making Radio Dinner and then Lemmings? How did, how did you find the all these Second City people? Well, I didn't actually find. Lots of Second City people. I found one Second City person. Okay. Um, but uh, the for, for Radio Dinner, the, the 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 sort of outsider about to be a star one of these days was Christopher Guest, who was very young at the time, but had this um, uncanny ear for parody of of singers, um, and um, we wanted to do a parody of Bob Dylan. Uh, it was very sacred at the time, and mm. nobody would do it. I mean, nobody outside of the Lampoon Circle would even consider it because he was sacred. So um, you didn't put down the poet of our generation, you know, kind of thing. But um, so he did that and did it brilliantly. Um, and um, actually on that album, I also did a parody of John Lennon, which uh, called Magical Misery Tour. Uh, you hear part of it in the documentary. Yes, yes, yeah. indeed, that, that exactly. Um, but um, and, and that, that became... So popular, those those the musical parodies we did mm-hmm. on that, or the rock-related parodies we did on the on the album, really got a lot of attention, and and um, especially the Lennon one, uh, because it was so outrageous, and and the the but Lennon's fault, entirely his fault, <laughs> um, but uh, right, just like uh, Saturday Night Live did with Sarah Palin, yeah. they were using his own words yes, against him. Yes, exactly, exactly. 
But anyway, so they, but they, they, then the Lampoon wanted another album very quickly, and they wanted one with more of that music stuff, please. Mm-hmm. So, um, so Sean Kelly and I decided to uh, do a parody of Woodstock because that was the next most sacred thing we could think of. Um, and um, we actually ended up parodying a lot of people who weren't at Woodstock, but also some who were, like, like Crosby, Stills and Nash and Joe Cocker. Um, and that, for that, I hired Chevy, who had been doing a weird thing called uh, Groove Tube, uh, which is kind of a dirty, sort of dirty television. Um, yeah. and, um, and Christopher, obviously, was available to us, so we had a brilliant parodist who did Dylan again, but did it as a proper song, and, and also did James Taylor, to James Taylor's great chagrin, because he came to the show one night. And, uh, <laughs> did and, he know what he was in for? Oh, no, not at all. <laughs> and while I, was, while I was sort of in the sort of production, early production stages mm-hmm. of this, I got this, uh, I got this tape from Chicago Second City from this kid called John Belushi, and, and um, it was a tape of really awful impressions. I mean, just like... Hey, Godfather, you know, and, and, and Truman Capote and all these kind of people that were just, but they were just bad. Was he deliberately bad or was he no, just bad? No, no, no. He thought they were really good because <laughs> he put them first. <laughs> and then there was this, this, um, this brilliant cocker parody. I mean, it was absolutely brilliant. Right. It was him do, doing, um, with a little help from my friends and, uh, uh, his, which was his big hit song, of course. Yeah. And, and I said immediately, I have to see this kid. So I went to Second City uh, to, to see John and hired him on the spot. I mean, he was, he was amazing. I mean, he was, like, he was like rock and roll and humor, sort of all rolled up into one great hairy ball of, you know, comedic brilliance. I mean, it just, he was terrific. So anyway, that, that's the only person I ever actually hired from Second City. Now, you know, you're... Not that I don't love Second City. Hasten to it. Well, I only say because then those other Second City people came yeah. in. and that, then, that was for the mostly And then the Lauren radio. poached them all for Saturday Night Live. Yes, exactly. <laughs> mostly for the radio show. That was when John was actually producing the radio show. When, in, your, in your post-Lampoon work, whether it was uh, Spy or Final Edition or Spitting Image, mm-hmm. have, you found it, have you found yourself trying to recreate the magic? Or is it just... Adapting to what the times have and and finding people who you can relate with. Well, I would say probably the first, although I wouldn't put it quite that way. I mean, I'd say more that um, more that I've tried to keep the faith. There's that monk coming back in again, <laughs> but I tried to keep the faith to the original sort of glory days of the lampoon and, and what we were up to then, but apply it obviously to you know the injustices and idiocies and stupidities of. Uh, and the unjust and stupid people uh, of of the 21st century, right. um, because I, it's not because there's a method there or anything, but there is an attitude, and and the attitude is that you have to be funny, obviously, you have to be smart, obviously, and not afraid of being smart, and you have to be pretty well informed, and you also have to be really not afraid to offend people. In fact, I wouldn't say that we set out to offend people, but if you if you're afraid of offending people, you will never make a mark. You're not not a mark that counts anyway. In my that's in my lexicon. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not it's not necessary necessarily true for everybody. But um, and and so yeah, I've sort of stuck to that old time religion, pretty much through all those things. I mean, spitting image was really as close as we ever anyone ever got to putting that attitude on television. And even it began to get rather jokey 
sort of halfway through the middle. They began right. playing. Well, I think, you know, in America, we, we saw a little bit of it. Right. But mostly, I remember as a child, mostly through the Genesis yeah, that video was really, that employed the same puppets. That was the only, yeah, that was the only way we, that, that we were exposed to it over here. Yeah. Although originally, my participation was, was to not only sort of help create it and, and co-produce the first season, but, but to bring it over here. I think it would have done amazingly well in the Reagan era. But, um, but anyway, that's water under the bridge. But now, with um, all of the satire that's out there on the Internet... Yeah, it's but I have this... Well, I mean, there is satire on the Internet, but I'm fairly purist about what the definition of satire is. And it is not satirical simply to make topical jokes or to even do sketches, necessarily. So, I mean, I don't think, for example, Saturday Night Live ever perhaps rarely dips into satire, actual satire. I think Tina Fey did when she did Sarah Palin because that is classic satire. And satire is taking on the not just the style or the voice or something like that of your, of your target, which is parody, but satire is taking on the inner thoughts and the prejudices and the mindset and the attitudes of your target and then exaggerating them so to such a degree that they become hilariously absurd and, and your target hopefully self-destructs. That <laughs> doesn't always happen, but, uh, but one hopes it does. Right, that's the challenge a lot of com- comedians are talking about today right. in 2016 with the presidential election. Is like, How much comedy can we throw at something and still have it not change the minds? Well, you see, I think that's I think that's copping out actually quite quite a lot. I mean, it's it's uh, there's always the, the same the, the same evil powers are are, are always in power. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's the same military. There's the same military set of mind. There's the same fans of the military. The Wall Street is far worse than it was hmm. in in the Lampoon day, in, or even, even the, the spy days. days. I'm sorry. Or even in the spy days. Yes, indeed, and and. Uh, and, and, the, and the grip that corporations have on the government is, is, is outrageous. I mean, outrageous. And people very rarely do stuff about, uh, about the, the sort of methodology and the sort of inside workings mm-hmm. of, of power. And satire's job is to stop the tendency that power has to corrupt and be corrupted. Lord Acton said power, that. Power corrupts. That the, power the, the quote corrupts is actually power tends to corrupt. And absolute power corrupts absolutely, but um, but anyway, <laughs> and, and so that gives satire the chink in which mm-hmm. to, to stop the tendency, and that's its job. And I think it's a very important job in society, even if it doesn't appear to be successful. To, you have to keep that voice coming, so otherwise power is unchecked. So let's just take for example Donald J. Trump. Right. Now, you were familiar with him. Back in the, the early nineties, the short-fingered <laughs> Bulgarian days. Yes, yeah, yeah, sure. Spy Magazine. <laughs> right. How is how is attacking Trump? How is the task of satirizing him different today now that he's a candidate for president than it was when he was just a real estate tycoon? Well, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, and we we haven't attacked him very much on on Final Edition because it seems to be pointless. I mean, it's not that he is doing things which are satirically ahead of us. It's that the attitudes that he brings to it um, are not worth reflecting. I mean, it's not like there is a real, there's any real thought in anything he says. It's, it's more about behavior and, and, and attitude towards other 
other candidates or other, you know, whatever it might be, mm -hmm. uh, minorities. It's not, right. it's not something that I would satirize. However, I would satirize, and we have relentlessly satirized, the Republican Party for being craven enough to actually get, you know, line up behind this, this vicious buffoon. Right. And, 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 and that's, that's outrageous. And that has not really been satirized. I mean, people have pointed it out. But they haven't. Right. So, but that's an example of there's always, as George said, there's always some way to come at your target. He didn't say, put it quite like that. But he said, there's nothing you can't be funny about. So when people say, well, yeah, I, you know, we don't do that because it's satirically, they're doing satire. They're doing mm -hmm. live satire. Uh, I say, yeah, well, that's because you're just being lazy. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't care who hears it. At my age, I don't have to. Uh, at your age, you also don't have to try to uh, remount a Lemmings production, but no, but, but I'm told that that's that's yeah, on your plate. Absolutely, yes, we'd love to do that. We'd love to do that. But but again, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be remounting Lemming, Lemmings as some kind of nostalgic, uh, right? Not uh, a reunion, you, you know, tour. Yeah, nostalgic, whatever. I mean, mm -hmm. a, uh, a reboot. I'm trying to think of a word. Hot dog eating contest comes to mind, but I mean, it's uh, it, it just it's it's the idea would be to take that same attitude towards celebrity, uh, and especially musical celebrity that we that we had then, but apply it to you know contemporary. To, 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 to contemporary music, but also to contemporary contemporary celebrity as much as anything. I think which 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 goes over into people who are you know more or less untouchable. Um, so it, it, the, the, the lemmings that we have in mind it, it will be, I think, surprising. Uh, so if I know anyone who has very bad impersonations but uh, can sing exactly <laughs> like... Any, anyone you can to have yes, them sure, send their, sure. their cassette tapes to you. Absolutely. Kanye, Kanye, Paradise, come on. Come uh, on over. What is, I ask all of my guests this, what is kind of the lasting some lasting advice that you keep with you to, to carry on? Is it something from Father Joe, or are there things that you lean on for inspiration hmm. to keep doing this as an old fart? Uh, well, as an old fart, um, I don't really have advice for younger farts, to tell you the truth. But uh, is there advice that, that helps you? You mean... Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, one of the one of the things that uh, George did rather than said was to keep going. And he he said, I mean, you know, I I did his book with him, so you know, I, my I last to, words. I, yeah, I I got to know him very well. In fact, we were really good friends. But I mean, he, basically, he said, "Why should I give up?" You know, I mean, there's there's just as much. There's just as much stuff to talk about out there as there ever was, if not more, and and I take that as an example. So if you if you want an example of what to be doing 20 years from now when you're 50 or 60, listen to George Carlin, and that's who that's who you should emulate. Hmm. Well, I have to say that I also thoroughly enjoyed listening to you, Tony Andra. Okay. So thank, thank you. you so much for 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 allowing me to do so. Thank you for letting me talk <laughs> like an old fart. Yeah. <laughs> This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. 
Theme music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Things first.